This is Cast Club Radio. Brought to you by Heritage Distilling. On Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. On Cast Club Radio, we believe every spirit has a story. And stories like good drinks are always better when shared with friends. Each week, we'll explore the intersection of cocktails, spirits, beer, wine, and life. It's Cast Club Radio. Here's your hosts, Lydia Cruz and Justin Stiefel. Good afternoon, friends. Welcome to Cast Club Radio. February 24th here in studio. My name is Lydia Cruz. I'm your host. This is Justin Stiefel from The Road. And I'm Maura Dooley. Yeah, Justin Stiefel all the way from Arizona right now, huh? Yeah, we're down uh, doing some touring and uh, winter break for the kids. So we thought we'd try and get out of Seattle's little nasty weather. And little did we know, we showed up in Tucson and it's colder in Tucson than it is in Seattle this week. <laughs> so I've heard. So, it's not supposed to be cold in Arizona ever. It's only supposed to be sunshine and golf and that's it. Not very helpful. Yeah. But lots more sunshine and so more vitamin D. So it's good. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's an excuse. If it's cold outside, you can spend more time watching the Winter Olympics, which are still going on this week. The closing ceremony is tomorrow, Sunday the 25th. What have you guys been watching? What's drawn you in so far in this Winter Olympics? What's drawn me in is seeing on Facebook videos of previous Olympics. And so uh, while I'll talk about the current Olympics in a minute, a Facebook thing popped up yesterday going back to the Calgary Games in 1988 where they had ballet, downhill downhill ski ballet. Oh, wow. And uh, they had a video of it. It was an exhibition sport for just two Winter Olympics. And uh, it was fascinating to watch people fully dressed up as downhill skiers with the full-length skis doing ballet down the slopes. And uh, we will post on Cast Club Radio some of the videos from some of those athletes doing that from 1988. Quite fascinating. Thankfully, it's no longer a sport in the Olympics. Sounds dangerous. Yeah. (laughs) What's drawn me in, well, ice dance slash ice skating always draws me in, but I've been really invested in and following the women's hockey team, the U.S. women's hockey team. It has been so much fun to watch. I'm a huge hockey fan. Hearing the news this week that Seattle is going to start accepting season ticket deposits for their hopefully eventual NHL team. That starts on March 1st. So I'm already in the hockey mood and watching this team and just how incredible these athletes are has been a lot of fun for me. Yeah, I've been a big fan of watching them, too. I I love, I think it's Amanda Kessel. I know mm-hmm. that her brother yeah. plays in the league, and I love that it's a family thing for them. And, and that he's been so supportive of her to the point where people have tweeted at him, uh, your sister is better than you, and he has tweeted back, <laughs> yeah, I know, and been entirely supportive of her. So it's been, that's, that's pretty cool. I, I saw for the first time last night the, the team short track uh, speed skating, and that's fascinating to watch. The it's whole chaos. Uh, interaction of the outer track and the inner track and the teams uh, pushing their their teammates forward as yeah. they come around and and just the chaos on the, the rank because that's fascinating to watch. Absolutely. Well, later in the show, we're going to talk about the most popular alcohol at the Winter Olympics. It will surprise you, I'm sure. And also later in the show, it was recently President's Day, so we got to chat with author Mark Will Weber. He wrote a book called Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, A History of Presidential Drinking, which is pretty cool. You learn a lot more about your presidents, more than you just do in your average history class when you learn about what the presidents were drinking and what their cocktails of choice were. So that's a little bit later in the show. But first, let's get to our headlines. What's going on in the industry of craft wine and spirits right now? Well, uh, first article we found this week that was interesting was the Portland Brewery. This is Bridgeport. They are famous for their Bridgeport IPA. Uh, They claim to be the first craft brewery to send beer into outer space. (laughs) 
<laughs> That's a good claim to fame. It is. It is. Sounds expensive. Uh, so what they did is they went to the FAA. They got permission for the FAA uh, to hook up bottles, and they launched these bottles with uh, balloons. And they had to have a full bottle inside an empty bottle because uh, when the pressure changed, they were concerned about the bottles breaking mm -hmm. and uh, not coming back down. So they had this double-layer bottle effect. Launched it. It reached 22 miles high before traveling back to Earth. It landed about 55 miles from the original launch point. They launched this out of Texas. And they're excited about the fact that they're the first craft uh, brewer to do this, uh, following the heels of Budweiser, which had recently sent uh, barley seeds up into space. I'm just curious, do these bottles of beers, if this is going to be a common thing, do they have to train like astronauts train? Because they have to go through a grueling process in order to be sent into space. So I'd love to see beer going through this incredibly detailed process in order to get launched into space. <laughs> like a video where they're putting the beer through training exercises. It's like a rocky montage. It's like, not, yeah. Not all the beer makes it through. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You guys need to do their marketing campaign. I know. That'd be pretty incredible. Not, not every beer is worthy of going into space. No. <laughs> As they shouldn't be. It should be a highly coveted position, right? What else is going on in uh, the industry? Well, Monkey Shoulder, which is a very famous brand of Scotch whiskey, they unveiled a giant cocktail shaker. The pictures really do the justice to this. They took a cement truck and converted the tank on the back into a massive, what looks like a stainless steel cocktail shaker in lieu of the cement mixing uh, device. And their goal is to drive this up and around the countryside. It's 2,400 gallons this tank that's on the back in the shaker format. And uh, they're going to be debuting it in Arizona. And they're going to be driving around the country, going to events, tastings, fairs, and so on to advertise not just scotch, single malt scotch, but monkey shoulder branded scotch specifically. Will we be able to get a picture of this maybe up on Heritage Distilling or a link to the story? Because you're right. The picture does it. You have to see the picture in order to, cool. to get the full impression of how cool this is and how fun it would be, be to see this in your neighborhood. Yeah, I can't imagine 2,400 gallons, you know, loading that thing up to make cocktails. It'd be quite messy at the end of the day. Yeah. But the visual of the truck itself is quite stunning. Yeah, I think the theme of the week is above and beyond marketing. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and lastly this week, we, we noticed our friends at Absolute. Absolute is owned by Pernod Ricard, and uh, they're makers of uh, world-famous vodka and a whole bunch of different brands. They launched a very funny video, and we're going to put a link of this video on Castle Radio, and it's called uh, Nothing to Hide, and it features 20 employees all completely buck naked interviewing in front of camera all aspects out in the fields watching the combines bring in the wheat in the distillery fermenting in the distillery bottling in the meetings with staff and they're using this as a way to try to attract new people to become employees the and they're all completely naked and it's quite funny <laughs> the idea being that they are a transparent company that their product has got nothing to hide correct Correct. Yeah. So, uh, we, we watched it internally. We decided <laughs> that uh, in the U.S. we probably couldn't get away with that because no. of uh, various harassment laws and stuff like that. But uh, we're glad to see that our friends across the pond uh, are still able to have a little bit of fun. Yeah, well, Mara hit the nail on the head. It really is above and beyond marketing campaign week. Some people coming up Very with some innovative. creative ideas to get their products out there. Yes. So nothing to hide. Nothing to hide. Absolute vodka. I like, I like the title. Yeah. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, President's Day just happened. 
but it's fresh in our minds. And we talk with author Mark Will Weber, the author of Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, History of Presidential Drinking. He explains some of the most notable drinks that our presidents have favored in the past and also why drinking is a tool, an important tool of diplomacy. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. I'm your host, Lydia Cruz. Have you ever wondered what the president was drinking behind the scenes? You hear plenty about what they're doing on paper, but did they know how to party? Did they know how to throw a good party and make a good cocktail? Right now, we get to talk to author Mark Will Weber. He wrote Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, a history of presidential drinking. He knows everything there is to know about what presidents were drinking behind the scenes. So, Mark, how does one become an ALCO historian? Well, it's kind of weird how it happened to me, because I, I do frequently am asked, uh, you know, what made you want to write this book uh, about the complete history of presidential drinking. And the the original actually came from a sports story. There's a book about the president's golfing, and I'm not a golfer, but it's called First Off the Tee. It was on New York Times bestseller for a while. And in that book, they talk about uh, Warren Harding would go golfing. And Harding uh, was during Prohibition. Nobody's supposed to drink. Nobody's supposed to transport alcohol. And Harding would habitually stash a fifth of whiskey in his golf bag. And he'd, you know, take a shot before he teed off. And every couple holes, he'd have another pop. By the back nine, he was shooting all over the place. And he almost (laughs) never broke 100. But my buddy read that, and he says, man, I want to know what all these guys drank. And... Uh, he said, you're a writer. Why don't you write this book about what all every president drank from, at that time, Washington to Obama? So uh, more to placate my friend, I, I finally did it. It combines a lot of your favorite things, right? I mean, you're already a history buff, but then you get to learn what every president was drinking. Right. It's, it's, it really is a fascinating subject. And it, it it's funny. And I, I think it's like this with most books. I've done five or six books at this point. But you get into it and you, you end up learning stuff that you didn't know to begin with. You think you know a lot about the subject going in, but you, you still pick up uh, little bits of knowledge here and there that, that floor you. And one of the things with me was the, the revolutionary guys used a whole different slang for alcohol than, than we do today. So they they didn't tend to say that so-and-so was drunk. They would say uh, he was quite fuddled at the old tavern <laughs> or Instead of saying he was on a binge or a bender, they would say he was on quite a frolic. Okay, <laughs> so, so maybe a few more euphemisms. Right. Politer yeah, sounding terms. Benjamin, yeah, I'm, I'm told that Benjamin Franklin uh, had, you know, dozens and dozens of terms for <laughs> intoxication. So. <laughs> so along this journey of writing this book and doing all this research, what was some of the more surprising stories that you found out? Well, I, I found out that a lot of it was... You, Humorous, you know. I you don't necessarily expect that. Some of it's serious. I mean, uh, Franklin Pierce probably was our our uh, most hardcore uh, drinker, and he died of cirrhosis of the liver, so that's not funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when Herbert Hoover goes to the World Series in 1929, and the entire stadium begins to chant, "We want beer," that's funny, you know. <laughs> and he leaves, and he writes in his diary how. How embarrassed he is to leave, uh, you know, drowned by these cheers of "We want beer" uh, when he it was in Philadelphia, of course. 
which is where I'm close to, and uh, the Philadelphia fans are notorious for being tough. So they, they, they actually drove the president from the stadium with chants of, we want beer. Uh, another funny one that, that I found was Franklin Roosevelt, a uh, guest at the White House, once found him huddled in the cloak closet mixing up cocktails. And uh, it was one of Hemingway's wives, I forget, uh, Martha Gellhorn. I don't know whether she was wife two or three, I think two. But she's like, you know, what is... FDR doing in the closet mixing up cocktails and he had some other people in there and they were all in her words giggling like a schoolboy <laughs> and here he was hiding from his mother because uh, when FDR's mother would come to the White House if he had one cocktail she would sort of glare at him but if he tried to mix a second one she'd actually begin to lecture him and say Franklin you've had enough <laughs> that kind of thing so, so there you have it that you know the leader of the the free world is hiding from his mother still can't escape it so he can have a second drink. So there's all kinds of, of little stuff like that. And then you, you pick up, like, I didn't realize that uh, a number of our presidents uh, made and sold whiskey. George Washington, whiskey turned out to be one of the most profitable things at Mount Vernon. They, at one point, he had five stills going, and they were sell, selling barrels of it in Old Town, Alexandria. And uh, same with Andrew Jackson. Andrew Jackson sold whiskey at the Hermitage, and it was almost like a barter system. A guy would bring him a nice pair of pistols, and he'd say, you know, help yourself to as much whiskey as you may need or require, that kind of thing. So uh, that's, that's pretty interesting. We don't think of our presidents as uh, selling whiskey necessarily. No, no, no. Uh, I'm also told, which, which of our founding fathers may have had some had distilleries in their backyard? Is that true? Well, yeah, I mean... As I said, Washington did for sure. A lot of these uh, people made beer. Jefferson's wife would make beer. Uh, Jackson, as I said, had whiskey. And and so that that was not uncommon for those presidents from the uh, early 1800s or late 1700s to, to have uh, alcohol right there on the premise. Jefferson is interesting because we often refer to him as the father of American wine with uh, with justification. Uh, but I don't think that many people know that he, he almost bankrupted himself, partly because of his wine habit. It wasn't that he was wow. drinking it all himself, but he often would uh, have lavish dinners, and they'd blow through, you know, 30 bottles of wine if he had a several dozen people there. And uh, especially when Lafayette came to visit in 1824, they hadn't seen each other for 50 years, so they had these series of stops and uh at monticello they they drank so much wine that it devastated uh jefferson's world renowned uh wine cellar and his daughter ended up selling monticello uh because uh they were bankrupt by then oh my gosh okay so like yeah. you said not all part in it <laughs> oh yeah solely, yeah but, so but he lived lavishly he would sometimes go through you know 800 bottles of champagne in a year that kind of thing <laughs> wow not a small habit. Uh, what about yeah. if what if any presidents were there some who were vehemently opposed to drinking alcohol or who just did not participate? Yeah, and and you know that was one of my fears when I first was thinking about doing the book. I'm like, well, what am I going to do with Jimmy Carter? I know he doesn't drink much, you know. And then I thought, well, Billy Carter drank a lot and and made Jimmy miserable, so I can <laughs> work that into it. Uh but the, the presidents that drank the least, uh surprisingly uh, Abraham Lincoln is at the top of the list. Honest Abe. Although Lincoln, as a young man, worked in a whiskey still, and he had a grocery 
when they say grocery back then, a lot of times it was a place you came to fill up your jug and maybe buy nails or horseshoes. Uh, but they almost always had a uh, whiskey jug component to it. So he sold whiskey at this grocery. And in fact, when he and Douglas had the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, Douglas would often say, Mr. Lincoln, you worked in a whiskey still and you sold whiskey at your store. And Lincoln would say, yes, Mr. Douglas, but I've quit my side of the counter and you, sir, are still one of our best customers, which was true because Douglas was a huge drinker. But but Lincoln, by the time he gets to the White House, doesn't drink at all. And uh, in fact, he he had a great sense of humor about alcohol. He would tell jokes with alcohol in it. Uh, and he would sometimes pick up a glass of wine at dinner and pretend he was going to sip from it and then smile and put it back down. Uh, so Lincoln is at the top of the list of uh, of uh, people that did not imbibe. We, there's some evidence that he drank something called small beer. Small beer was sort of like 2% alcohol, and they would even give it to kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, another guy who didn't drink hardly at all was Calvin Coolidge. And uh, so when he was in the White House during Prohibition, he was one of the few presidents that, that actually uh, towed the, the, the uh, Company the line, yeah. That. Yeah, whereas I already said Harding violated that rule all the time. He would drink when he golfed, and he would hold poker games at the White House, and they would drink, and he'd have the first lady, uh, they called her the Duchess, scurry about and fill up the cronies' glasses. And he once lost an entire set of White House china on the, by cutting a deck with, with this, uh, this beautiful woman that lived in Georgetown, and the next day she... She came out and found this set of china on her front stoop. So uh, he often violated these uh, the so-called prohibition rules. And, and then, of course, we have to thank FDR for ending that madness on in 1932, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, December 5th. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, more from author Mark Will Weber. We learn why drinking was not only a social activity for presidents, but why it was also a tool of diplomacy. That's next on Cast Club Radio. Welcome back to Cast Club Radio. Thanks for being here right now. We're in the midst of a chat with author Mark Will Weber, author of Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, A History of Presidential Drinking. How about first ladies? What roles did they play in your research and in drinking in general in the White House? The first ladies are are very interesting because in the the revolutionary times, they often are the people that are making the alcohol. Uh, Jefferson's wife certainly did, and uh, so they have a hand in that. Dolly Madison loves champagne, so there's some really funny stories that involve Dolly Madison and champagne. Uh, And then when you get into the... The uh, more recent times, of course, uh, we all know that Betty Ford liked to have a drink or two, maybe too many, and eventually founded, you know, the Betty Ford Foundation. Uh, So they're always involved in some way, you know, maybe peripherally. Uh, Jackie Kennedy loved French champagne, so she would order, you know, this really expensive champagne. And uh, once JFK, uh, when he was learning the twist, uh, got a bunch of these champagnes out and shook them up and sprayed champagne all over the White House furniture. (laughs) So they're they're usually involved in some way. Uh, uh, You know, I, I don't know about the present 
situation since uh, the president, uh, current president, uh, supposedly only drinks diet soda. <laughs> Maybe it'll come out later. Maybe that will be the second book down the line. We'll find out more. Yeah, perhaps. What is one of the more unusual drinks or cocktails that that you found out about when you were doing your research? Well, there's a bunch of them, and I tried to be authentic. I didn't, uh, you can find a lot of uh, stuff, especially online, where they make up drinks and attribute them to this president or or the other. So I tried to steer clear of that. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a great drink in there called the McKinley's Delight that's uh, named in honor of William McKinley, uh, and it was created at the 1896 uh, Republican convention in St. Louis by a bartender. It's a lot like a Manhattan, but there's uh, also some absence in it. So it's a really good drink. But I, you know, I like to have one. But if you have two, you should call Uber or uh, Lyft or somebody like that because <laughs> uh, it's a pretty potent drink. But it's it's really pretty tasty. I like that drink. There's something that Bill Clinton used to like uh, when he was a student at Oxford. He used to drink something called a snake bite which doesn't sound very good to me, but I'm intrigued enough that I might try it. It's, uh, it's basically uh, a big glass of a half hard cider, alcoholic cider, and then they float like uh, a Guinness or some sort of dark stout on top of it. And apparently uh, Bill Clinton developed an affinity for that drink when he was a student in, in England, when he was a Rhodes Scholar. The snake bite. When I used to bartend, I yeah. actually had to make a couple of those, and it's harder than you think to get. People want the layers. With the dark beer on top yeah, fading into the, so. yeah, yeah. it's hard. <laughs> yeah, so I, I know you guys out in Seattle know a lot about uh, mixing up various concoctions. So it's, since it's a it's a good party town. One thing I wanted to ask you about, and we actually have a a namesake bar out here, but I don't know the story behind it. What is bathtub gin? Well, bathtub gin is is usually the a nickname for alcohol that's mixed up during Prohibition where they're trying to, of course, circumvent the law. So they're trying to to be uh, secretive about it. And one of our presidents that liked that mixed up bathtub gin was Eisenhower. And he was uh, a young officer and uh, he would he he was rooming with this other young officer by the name of Patton, George Patton. And George Patton made his own beer. But Ike used to like to mix his own gin in, in the bathtub and uh, and serve it, but that was sort of right after World War One. But it was during Prohibition again, and nobody was supposed to be making alcohol. But uh, Ike would do that. Do you feel that by doing all this research, you sort of saw a different side of of presidents and their personalities that you normally wouldn't get in your basic textbooks, basic history course? Uh, absolutely, I think you know you certainly. You certainly get a, a look at the presidents when they, you know, kick up their heels. So Let their speak. hair down, um, yeah. A lot of, yeah, and a lot of times they're they're also doing it in conjunction with something else they like to do. Like a lot of the presidents uh, would like to drink beer when they play poker, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, certainly FDR you, is more associated with the cocktail, but when he played poker, he'd have four or five beers, you know, something like that. Uh, and speaking of poker and presidents and alcohol, one of my favorite stories uh, was involved uh, Ulysses S. Grant. And Grant apparently had a friend down. He was an important newspaper publisher from upstate New York, and and they played poker and drank a lot. And the next day, the publisher woke up and found out that Grant had appointed him to be the new ambassador to Greece. Oh, wow. <laughs> so it's like... 
you play poker, you have a few drinks, and you wake up, and somebody's going to send you to Athens, you know? Got a new job. <laughs> yeah, so it's a good way to get things done sometimes. And, and of course, you, you know, we talk about that all the time. You know, one of the, the worst things about the situation right now is how polarized both parties are. Mm-hmm. And alcohol can sometimes be that olive branch between the, uh, the two parties. And uh, a small part, but arguably an important one to grease the skids for conversation and uh reagan was a master of this he reagan was not himself a big drinker uh but he would often share a a drink or two with tip o'neill the top democrat of the of the day and uh and they learned to compromise on a lot of issues and I think we can all agree we could use a little bit of that uh, in our present situation. Absolutely. So it was not only a social aspect, but also almost a tool of diplomacy. Yes. And and, and let's not forget, too, that the role in the entire political process, like people, when I I give talks occasionally, would say, well, you know, was it always part of the presidential process? And my answer to that is it predates America in that, we, we actually have the laundry list of booze that Washington bought for his first election to the House of Burgesses in Virginia when we were still a British colony. And it's an extensive list of rum and Madeira and all this stuff. And uh, so it's always been used to ply the voters in some form or fashion. We, we do it with a little more uh, upscale uh, motif now with these, you know, expensive dinners where they're serving $100 bottles of wine and champagne and such, but it's always been used to to rile up the voters or, you know, have them consider your side as the the way to go. Wow. Well, that actually kind of leads into our, our next question. We like to ask all of our guests, if you were having a cocktail party or perhaps a political get-together, as we were talking about, what would be your cocktail of choice to serve? Well, my, my first thing is I would like to be authentic uh, if I could. And, for instance, uh, I often am asked to, to speak at uh, some historic taverns. I was just down in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown at the City Tavern there, which oh, is the cool. oldest remaining uh, tavern there. And, you know, John Adams is visited there, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So if I'm having sort of a, a revolutionary era talk I, 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 there are these beer some yards in Philadelphia one is called the George Washington Porter and the other one is called the Thomas Jefferson uh, Tavern Ale and they're very authentic to what those guys actually drank uh, back in the day George Washington loved the uh, Porter and uh, it would be mixed with molasses back then mm-hmm. so I think it's neat to be authentic so if you're having sort of a prohibition era party then by, by all means have some of the cocktails from that mm-hmm. era you know, um, that kind of thing. And if you could invite anybody, any of these presidents, first ladies, living or dead, to this cocktail party, who did? Who do you think that you'd have to invite or that you'd want to chat with? Wow. I mean, it's tough. in all honesty, I, when I first wrote this book, I kept waiting for Obama to invite me to the White House <laughs> to have a... Uh, oh, that would be a, fun. Uh, yeah, because he had this beer they made there called White House Honey Ale, and they actually used honey from uh, the beehives in the presidential garden to make this beer. And it was supposed to be great, but I never got the invite. But in all honesty, if I had a choice to drink with any of the presidents, I'd probably want to drink with Jefferson because Jefferson would be very philosophical. I mean, he was probably one of the smartest uh, men of his day, you know, mm-hmm. interested in science and and uh, and obviously great food and all kind of philosophy, you know, all kinds of great subjects. So can you imagine being at Monticello 
Uh, they actually drank wine after dinner. They didn't drink it with dinner. They had uh, what they called their table drinks, and that was hard cider and beer. But wine was afterwards to uh, philosophize about life and <laughs> that kind of thing. So uh, if, I, if I'm feeling uh, highbrowed and intellectual, that's the way I would go <laughs> <That's> pretty, <laughs> with Jefferson. Yeah, that's a pretty good party. That's right there. Yeah, I mean, it would be it would be incredible to uh, be able to go back in time. Not that Jefferson wasn't uh, didn't have his flaws. I mean, all the presidents have their flaws, and and uh, this this book you certainly encounter those. Well, speaking of that book, how can people get a co- get their hands on a copy? Because I need one <laughs> purely selfishly. Well, but it, how how can people access it? The book actually came out about three years ago. It's called uh, Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, and then the subhead is The Complete History of Presidential Drinking. And you can get them on Amazon. I, I would suppose uh, you could probably get a fairly cheap one on Amazon these days since it's been out for a while. Uh, I recently did a book about alcohol in the Civil War called uh, Muskets and Applejack, and the premise of that is which generals got drunk and lost battles and that kind oh, of thing. Oh, wow. Also ha- yeah, and also how they used alcohol to treat the wounded, that kind of thing. So that that if you're interested in the Civil War, that's a book you might want to check out. Uh, but uh, Mitchell's with Teddy Roosevelt, you can certainly get it online easily. Uh, I think sometimes Barnes and Noble carries it, um, and my publisher in Washington D.C. Regnery certainly has it on their website. Great, awesome, Mark. Do you have anything else that uh, going on that you? whether it's these talks or anything that you want people to check out, a website? I have an author's page. If they, they Google, you know, uh, Mark Will Weber author, it should probably pop up on as a Facebook page. And we usually post uh, if I'm giving any local talks, that kind of thing, and, and sometimes just some, some fun presidential drinking history <laughs> on that. Well, we so appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. And if you're ever in Seattle, Maura and I will... Definitely have to have to be there at one of your talks. Well, that'd be great. You know, I I'm, I I love that uh, part of the world. I love Seattle and Portland, Oregon as well. So, uh, yeah. hopefully, if I get out that way, I, I'll take you guys up on that offer. Thank you so That's much, good. sir. We really appreciate it. Coming up on Cast Club Radio, we stick with our presidential theme. We've got a cocktail for you, inspired by a famous first lady. Also, do you know what the most popular, best-selling liquor in the world is? If I had to quiz you right now, it's something that would surprise you, I'm telling you. And it's something that's probably pretty popular this weekend at the Olympic Games. I'll explain next on Cast Club Radio. Club Radio. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Lydia Cruz. Uh, we just chatted with author Mark Will Weber, the author of Mint Juleps with Teddy Roosevelt, who gave us a good behind-the-scenes look at what some of our most favorite favorite presidents were drinking in their times. And in just a little bit, we're going to give you a cocktail recipe of your own inspired by President's Day. But first, the Winter Olympics, we're at the very end here, the closing ceremonies tomorrow. We've talked about what has drawn us in, what we've been watching. But... Uh, an interesting part of the Olympics is the most popular alcohol, not only at the Olympics and what's being drank at, in Korea, but the most popular alcohol in the world, according to CNN. Yeah, this uh, the most popular drink in the world. Um, in South Korea, they call it soju, you know, spelled S-O-J-U. In China, they call it baiju. 
but it's all uh, essentially derived from the same processes. And in South Korea, they historically have made it with rice. But between 1960 and 1990s, according to CNN, the use of rice was banned because of uh, food shortages. So they began making soju with other ingredients like wheat and other grains that they're growing locally. Sweet potatoes. Starches, sweet potatoes Mm -hmm. and so on. And interesting, the average South Korean adult consumes 13.7 shots of soju a week, more than anywhere else in the world. That's okay. So we're we're averaging about two per day for the average – South Korean, which is surprising yeah, so since the taste of this, right, is quoted as watered down vodka or rubbing yeah, alcohol. It's a, typically a little lower percent alcohol in sochu. In China, the baiju is very high alcohol, typically over 100%. The sochu oh, wow. is lower, lower percentage of alcohol. Um, and to put 13.7 shots per week in perspective, uh, they only drink about a shot. But that is almost the equivalent of a full uh, 750 milliliter bottle or a fifth. Wow. So that would mean that an average adult is consuming a full bottle a week almost, you know, just in straight shots of this uh, spirit. And they use it for celebrations and for uh, just consuming at uh, dinner meals. So, yeah, either by these numbers, they're having a lot of celebrations or just a lot of fun dinner parties over there in Korea. That's right. And they say money is never an issue because when it comes to drinking in South Korea, you always have soju. Uh, in South Korea, a 750 milliliter bottle uh, runs about seven U.S. dollars. So it's fairly inexpensive. Uh, that would put it on par with the average beer. Uh, but with the average beer here, uh, you know, you're going to have one serving, whereas a bottle is going to give you, like, like I said, almost almost 14 servings a week. So quite cost effective for them over there. I like some of the traditions that are involved with it. It says typically it's served cold in small traditional glasses. You never drink from the bottle and you must use both hands when pouring or receiving a glass. And you should pour for others whenever you see an empty glass and you never pour your own soju. It's bad luck to pour your own soju. Not like that. Yeah, it's a social aspect. It's really about the people that you're drinking with as much as what you are actually drinking. Well, if That's you- right. The article the article talks about, uh, unlike bourbon, bourbon has very specific rules in the U.S., how you have to make it if you want to call it bourbon. Over in South Korea, there are no rules. So it's really just a localized tradition for how they want to consume the spirit and how they make it locally, region by region. Well, if you can't get your hands on some soju, which, as we learned, the most popular, selling, best-selling liquor in the world, according to CNN, if you can't get your hands on some of that, we do have a cocktail that you can make inspired by President's Day which just happened. So there's still a little bit of the patriotism theme also going on there, left over from the Olympics. So, Justin, what's on uh, the recipe card for this week? Well, this week we took a little inspiration from Dolly Madison. Uh, she was the wife, wife of our fourth president, James Madison. James Madison helped author the Declaration of Independence, uh, was one of the original signers of it, and is the drafter of our Constitution. A brilliant guy from Virginia. And Dolly Madison was quite shy, but even though she was shy, she hosted lots of balls and fundraisers and and had very good influence helping her husband. So today, we're going to make Dolly Madison whiskey sour. Uh, We'll start off with two ounces of our bourbon, a half ounce of fresh lemon juice. Again, you want to use fresh lemon, squeeze it uh, with a squeeze press. A half ounce of fresh lime juice in the same manner. Half ounce of simple syrup. And again, if you want to make simple syrup at home, it's equal parts sugar, equal parts water. Uh, or you can get uh, simple syrup at uh, your local liquor store. Shake all that in a shaker. Not as big as the the shaker from Monkey Shoulder truck. But, <laughs> Let's uh, hope not. Yeah. Just your typical shaker. And uh, strain it. 
over ice. And then you want to garnish that with the maraschino cherry and a lemon peel. Ooh, and uh, again, the uh, maraschino cherries uh, we like to use are the dark, dark, deep purple ones uh, that are the authentic ones from Italy, not necessarily the bright red ones that look, uh, look like a color that doesn't <laughs> exist in nature. Makes yeah. a difference. Electric pink, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that's it. The Dolly Madison Whiskey Sour. It certainly sounds like something that would be popular at a party. And Believe- you can make it in larger batches. Very true. You drink like a first lady punch for your next party. <laughs> That's right. That's right. I love it. So if people want to get their hands on this recipe, as always, they can find it, heritagedistilling.com. You can also check out episodes of the podcast. If you've missed any episode of Cast Club Radio, we don't want you to do that. You can catch up on past episodes or you can go to uh, com. Follow the Cast Club radio tab, and uh, we are under there under podcasts. That's right. We're also on Instagram. Uh, we're at Facebook on uh, Cast Club Radio on Facebook. Don't forget to write us on iTunes. And uh, if you have any questions, comments, suggestions, email us at caskclubradio at heritagedistilling.com. That's perfect. Well, Justin, you stay warm down there in Arizona. We look to hear some more stories. Well, we've done uh, quite a few interviews on the road here with some very interesting people who are doing cool things in the local wine trade and, as a little tease, the local meat trade down here in Tucson. Okay, I like that. Coming up on Cask Club Radio, that's for next time. Thanks for listening to Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling, part of Cairo Weekends on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Check us out on MyNorthwest.com to learn more and catch up on past episodes. Cask Club Radio, brought to you by Heritage Distilling on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM.